Welcome, Austin, Allen, Jim. Uh, we're here talking about uh, the wargaming history of Jim Dunnigan and SPI and strategy and tactics and, and the like. Well, one of the things that uh, you did, Jim, uh, very early on was you had a playtesting night that I, I don't know when you guys named it the Friday Night Follies, but could you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, uh, it began... I, I think it was it was after I'd started designing for Avalon Hill. Mm-hmm. I did two games for them early on, uh, Jutland in 1914. I think that was 67 and 68 they were published. And I was also working on my own designs. Uh, they they became the Test Series games. They, they were published twice, once as Test Series games, and then we cleaned them up a bit later on. We published most of them as SPI games. Um, and I needed playtesters. Um, and Al and I got in touch, I think it was through the general, they would, uh, you know, I think we both wrote letters to the general and we always, they always have the, uh, the, the city, the town, whatever, not the actual, you know, street address. And I think, uh, I think the general did that because in those days it was hard to get in touch with other gamers. Um, and it was obvious that, uh, you know, it was difficult to find opponents <laughs> because even though Avalon Hill was selling, you know, more games, uh, than SBA, they were in fact until I guess 74, 75, uh, they sold more games than anybody else. But after 76, you know, we surpassed them. Um, but in, most importantly, uh, we had, uh, we had, you know, a more open editorial attitude in in S and T and Moves magazine, the game gaming magazine, um, which made it easier for people to get in uh, in touch with one another, and we encouraged that because it basically meant more play testers, uh, which many smaller uh, gaming companies uh, that prop that sprang up during the seventies, like Game Designers Workshop and what have you, uh, uh, they didn't have this. They they weren't in a large urban area because on on Friday nights at SPI. We'd have anywhere from two dozen to thirty or forty. Sometimes it was really crowded. Um, and but anyway, we all started with Al down in Brooklyn, and we had like a core group of maybe half a dozen guys. Uh, there was Eddie Bersan, there was Pete McDonald, there was Champer, uh, Doctor Doctor, as we call him now. He's got two. He's an MD as well as a doctorate in something else. Um, he was going through his hippie phase at that point. But he was smart. He was always smart as a whip. In fact, we had he was so good at playing the games, uh, we, we called the finishing stages of balancing a game, champerizing it. In other words, we'd say, all right, Bob, Bob Champer, says, go in there and do your worst, which was asking for it. Uh, and he would often not find a way to, you know, basically break the game, a perfect, you know, solution as we're gaming the game. But when he did, and he did in several times, we had to fall haul back and say, "All right, let's let's analyze this," and he'd be involved in that, and we'd make him, uh, uh, you know, change here, change there, and bing, and then it was ready for publication. Um, but it all started with the, you know, the the happy half dozen, as it were, uh, down in Brooklyn, and then in '69, '68, I moved to Manhattan, and that was all those big royalties checks from Avalon Hill. Actually, that those amounted to up till '68, I guess, over in current dollars, over ten grand. So in those days, you know, money went a lot further, even not accounting for inflation. And I, I moved up to the Lower East Side, and um, and I was going to Columbia at the time. I started there, and I think mm, whenever the whenever the GI Bill was reinstated, <laughs> I immediately transferred up to Columbia. And I had pretty good grades, and geez, I, I took half. I took a, a, a semester worth of uh, credits that I gained in the army. They had a uh, an, a a college uh, course program run by the University of Maryland, uh, where they taught you know economics, you know math, history, you name it. Um, and uh, if you were in a post that had a place and your schedule was flexible enough, you could make it you know three or four times a week for the classes, and then take the test. Uh, you know, you could you could pile up points, which in most cases, you know, it was a legit operation. Uh, even Columbia accepted it, so I, I get that. That to me, you know, certifies <laughs> the Army program. But anyway, uh, when we started SPI in '69, uh, we were still operating out of my place in uh, uh, initially in, in Lower East Side, uh, but then we we brought the first. We rented the first of many places. First was a basement uh, off Second Avenue. Um, 
our, 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 the other tenants down there in the other spaces was a, uh, a puppeteer and a pornographer, different people. But anyway, uh, then we moved up to 23rd Street and the rest is, you know, history as it were, made several moves up there. Um, but once we had a, a place and that was the first place was in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty scary when we, when the word got around and they'd come down. Uh, we attracted them first with pizza night, which was what we call playtesting, and we'd buy a couple of pizzas. But eventually, I got caught a couple of guys just coming down for the pizza, so we cut out the pizza, and at that point, they order in their own. You know, once you had them hooked, you know, one freebie. It was like, you know, drugs. Um, and uh, after that, you know, we had a steady flow. The word, word of mouth, what have you. Once it got up to the, uh, you know, the elite, you know, high schools uh, like Dalton and what have you, that gave us a huge rush of uh, of pretty smart kids. Uh, we found out from the feedback that uh, people became mostly boys. Uh, became interested or capable of interested and capable of playing war games once they hit puberty. What the connection was, I don't know, but it was a pretty much of a uh, you know a provable, you know, it wasn't just a, you know a, a correlation. It was it turned out to be causation. You very you very rarely get anyone younger than that, you know, coming in. But a lot of kids, you know, the minute they you know discovered, hmm, those girls are ladies. Um, they would, for a few years, you know, be uh, hopped up in games until they found out to get a little closer to the ladies. And then we lost them for a few years. We had guys coming back, you know, after three or four year, you know, skirt chasing hiatus, uh, coming back semi-regularly uh, for playtesting. We even got married guys. <laughs> you know, once they got settled on it, it was a, it was daddy's night to get away from the, the youngins. Uh, and come down there and spend a couple hours playing games. So we had a pretty, you know, wide by the early mid seventies, we had a pretty wide uh, assortment of uh, of playtesters. Al was again uh, one of the first, uh, and basically one of the ringleaders, as it were, uh, with other senior staff members of the playtesting. It was really somewhat organized because once we were on Twenty Third Street, uh, it was wide open, uh, and we had to do with some filtering. You know, we had only had a couple of flakes that we had to toss out were just asked to leave. Uh, some nights we had a lot of tours. I mean, literally, some places they were bringing in his friends from out of town and yada, yada. And as long as they wandered around, didn't get in the way, I, you know, it was no big deal. They'd lock up the art department. You know, that's where the, the comp one computer we had at that early days, that was the typesetting computer and a lot of other stuff you don't want nest with. But otherwise, we had all these playtesting rooms and offices, which, again, people could turn the key on and lock. Uh, but usually there was so much traffic running around, nobody was going to sneak in anywhere, you know, uh, ruffle, pilfer, whatever. Um, so it was one on the honor system. In this case, it basically worked. Uh, but the basic rule was, you know, uh, the testing was supervised. Um, uh, I would wander around uh, the various heads of uh, Terry Hardy and then Brad uh, Hessel, you know, the, the heads of R&D. I wasn't technically, I was the, you know, the head troublemaker. Um, well, I was the CEO, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and I, I eventually pointed somebody else as you're, you're the head of R&D. I was still turning on a lot of games, but I wasn't responsible for the day-to-day -day supervision of the, uh, of the progress of the games. Uh, Redmond, he, he basically did all the formal organization, you know, the rules and what have you, that, that the case system. Um, and, uh, we hired an editor from a book publisher at scientific book publisher, uh, to help with that. And he, he ended up going down to Washington and enjoying a long career working for the Beltway Bandits, uh, game development operations. Mark Herman was one of the big guys down in Washington. Uh, he was a vice president of one of the uh, Booz Allen, I think, uh, for years. Um, so, you know, there was, there was a lot of churn, as it were. People came and went. Some we hired, others just, you know, came and went. Um, uh, for example, one of our gamers uh, took the Foreign Service officer's test and became, you know, a, a you know, member of the Foreign Service. And he was one of the guys that was captured in 79 in, uh, in Iran. In Tehran, in Tehran, uh, Rich Queen. Uh, he was the guy who was let out early because he had what did he have? That um, oh, I forget. It was the, it was the, the neuromuscular disease, uh, which I think eventually killed him. Uh, 
But, you know, when he got out, he wasn't that sick. But they, 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 they the Iranians diagnosed him. He says, well, we don't want this cripple around here. He's too much trouble. Yada, yada. We sent war games, for example, to the, which they let in uh, to help them pass the time. And they did. And they sort of mystified the uh, uh, the Iranians who were Guards were mostly, you know, university students or, you know, fairly educated people. A lot of them spoke English. I don't know how many war gamers we created in, uh, in, in, in Iran, but, you know, that was another offshoot, as it were, of our, our playtesting uh, system. Um, but it was, it was an essential part of it. And when I wrote that book, War Game Design, which I think was published in 77 or 78, and we had a chapter in there. And then I, when I did the War Games Handbook in 1980, I devoted more and more space, you know, to the to the details of uh, of uh, recruiting and managing playtesters and playtesting. Uh, and that basically became the, the the Bible, as it were, for all the other companies. Uh, we I also picked up on using uh, what we call blind testers, where at the end of the, at the end stages. We get people that we knew and trusted, et cetera, et cetera, and make up a, you know, one of the prototypes, handmade as it were, and mail it off to them. Uh, they'd often have a group of local gamers, and their input was often very useful because they were, they were again, they were blind. They weren't involved in playtesting at the early stages. They were getting sort of like the last, last, uh, you know, uh, uh, pass as it were, and. Uh, we had to communicate by phone or sometimes if they had a lot of, you know, comments and what have you, they, they'd write them or type them up and send them in. Got to remember, this is all in the pre-internet days. It was different back then. Um, but, you know, eventually, of course, now uh, all those small, there's, oh, God, there's over a dozen small game companies which are still, you know, breaking even at least and making a little money. Yeah. Uh, almost all of them use uh, mostly, uh, you know, distant testers they they and it's easier of course these days to uh uh you got the desktop publishing what have you and and, and there's more printing facilities you can print out you know your prototype uh, games and what have you uh and mail them off to your testing groups and they can they can email back you know their um, uh their critiques and what have you uh, but that it all started back in the pre-internet <laughs> days where we were doing things by hand uh, and it worked out pretty well. Avalon Hill was a was that was similar, but they uh, in Baltimore they basically were drawing upon the local university um, universities, colleges, and high schools. Uh, and what was it? Dave Pinsky, Pinsky, I forget his first name, uh, and, and the other Pinsky, Larry Pinsky, and his and his uh, and his sidekick, uh, no, another name I forget because it was H or Buell, Buell or something like that. Um, uh, they actually designed a couple of games early on, uh, but they also did a lot of the playtesting, and they they the ones who recruited uh, playtesters down there. Avalon Hill was basically operating out of, I think, two offices, and they were basically an annex to the warehouse, <laughs> the printing printer's warehouse. So they had space, but they had they, they couldn't leave stuff set up because there was work going on, you know, during the day, as it were. But they got their playtesting done, and uh, they put out some fairly complex games later in the 70s when they, they hired more staff, as it were, Don Greenwood and, and uh, what was his name? The other guy that I didn't recommend, uh, that I didn't know him. Uh, uh, and Avalon Hill really got their mojo going, you know, by the late 70s. Um, but again, they used the same techniques. But again, those techniques have, have proliferated. But Really, the mother of all Friday Night Follies. I don't think anybody else ever held open war gaming that attracted such a large and and, and fairly uh, regular uh, group of people. And we had the whole gamut, you know, from uh, <clears throat> from high school and, and college students all the way up to Wall Street lawyers, stockbrokers, uh, uh, you name it. Uh, and then on top of that, if that wasn't enough feedback, as it were. Uh, we held several uh, focus groups uh, where we picked names out of, of at random, so to speak, out of local. You know, we had the big printout of all of our uh, our, our, our subscribers, uh, and we'd send them a letter offering to, on a certain date uh, to come on down for an hour or two for a focus group. We would get a free nosh, they get a free game, and they get to give their their comments, you know, face to face. And one of the most interesting things I got out of that was one reason a lot of people, and this came from a doctor who, who came on down, 
he said he didn't really have much time. He was a fairly young doctor, so they're they're busy as hell uh, when they're getting started. He says, um, I don't really have enough time to play them, uh, but what I, why I buy so many is because I can read them. And we've popped that into the, uh, into the feedback questions that was when that happened. Uh, and we found out there was, well, I was maybe 10, 20% who didn't really buy them so much for playing, but they could look at the map, they could look at the counter sheet, they could scan through the rules. And, uh, and this is what a lot of veteran gamers were doing, especially R&D people. You could look at a game and suss it out pretty quickly out of a breaking, you know, setting up the map and the counters and that and playing it. And, and you got pretty accurate at that. I mean, I, I acquired that skill early on. Uh, that's why I was such a, a prolific designer because I wasn't really interested in playing them that much, except for during the early, you know, developing the prototype. Uh, because I could basically look at a situation. Al was another one who could do that. I mean, he was very useful because he had a he had a wider brief of of uh, he remembered sources better than I did. We also bought a stack pass uh, to Columbia, and uh, of course we had the forty the forty second Street. Uh, the main library, the New York City library, but that stack pass up at Columbia was invaluable because I had one of those when I was a, a student. My last two years at Columbia, I was a, on an honors a se- honors seminar, whatever, like an like an MA thesis without the MA. Um, and that one one side, what bonus that got you was it was a was a stack pass, and I could just jump down there in the stacks and boy, it was you know paradise. Um, but anyway, we had no no shortage of people who were willing to grab the stack pass and and, and take the subway up to Columbia to spend a few hours down in the stacks, you know, looking for stuff. You couldn't check anything out, but you could take notes and what have you. And and if you spoke some languages, at that point I spoke uh, I, I read pretty good uh, French and German. And I'll never forget, you know, the the gold mine of, of stuff I found down there. The only shortcoming was the damn Germans. During the 30s, and when they, that's when they published their World War One official history, they used this what they call fractor, and that's like an old timey, you know, al, uh, you know, typeface, which is which I think even Germans, a lot of Germans had trouble reading it, uh, but I had to, you know, basically plow through it, um, and but that was a gold mine uh, because you know these were these were documents that you wouldn't find in bookstores, you wouldn't find in most libraries. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't even in the in the Forty uh, Second Street Library. Another problem with the Forty Second Street Library, as years went by, some again you couldn't check stuff out of there, but it didn't stop people from stealing, and we found a lot of valuable sources just were no longer available. Uh, some after action reports, some books with nice order of battle stuff, yes. intelligence, you know, uh, books people wrote after small print run uh, books. Uh, that you know didn't have didn't have a large circulation, but the libraries grabbed them, uh, and some you know uh, you know criminal collectors <laughs> grabbed them out of the. Uh, well, the one, of the one, one of the other th- problems the library had was some of those books were so so huge. Like the remember the oh, Third Army, the after action reports, the Third yeah. Army, yeah. So oh, what what, what the library eventually discovered? This is like years later when they hired a team to clean the shelves. Imagine, you know, at 50 years <laughs> of dust. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the team went in there, and they began discovering books in all sorts of weird places. Yes, Miss, that's where a lot of the books probably disappeared. Uh, they were misshelled. Yeah, the, the, the clerk would say, I ain't going to take this MF and three-volume, 200-pound book, you know, down to the umpteenth <laughs> cellar. I'm going to put it here with the children's literature, you know. Right. Nobody will ever find it. Uh, but anyway, at least we became aware that those books existed. And when I started working down at, uh, in the seventy, also in the seventies, I was going down and lecturing down at the uh, the Army War College, and also secondarily in Washington and what have you. Um, I'd mention those titles, and they often had copies, uh, like the Strategic Bombing Survey. I was, I, I always was, and I'm still am feuding with the Navy, the Ar- the Air Force. Uh, you know, for not paying attention to their own lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the, the biggest problem was BDA, Battle Damage Assessment, which through, I think, four wars, they've, they've underplayed, un- didn't pay enough attention to. 
And then when the dust has settled and they get a chance to put people on the ground, I says, gee, why don't we catch this? Well, you weren't paying enough attention. Uh, I don't know if I finally got through to them. I do follow that strategy page. I'm always looking out for new information on that. But there's, it's, a, it's a black hole in the Air Force to this day. When I was going down to the Air Force War College for a few years on a regular basis to talk, um, I found out that I get blank looks. You know, oh, yeah, we send in, we send in reconnaissance. Let me take pictures. But then I started reeling off the stories and I said, go look at the strategic bombing survey. And one of the re- things I used the strategic bombing survey was for the Flying Fortress game. That was a strategic uh, bombing in over Germany in France. Um, and I, I found a lot of things in there. For example, we could have stopped the war early on if we hadn't misinterpreted in the, in the in- initial analysis, the target, they had a targeting mm-hmm. committee. All sorts of uh, experts. Some of them were real. Some of them were alleged. But one thing they all missed, nobody picked up on the fact, and it was no big secret, wasn't top secret, that the German electrical power distribution grid wasn't set up like the, the one in the United States. Or, you know, and then actually the German grid was fairly typical of the ones in Europe. But anyway, it wasn't as interconnected. It didn't have this huge infrastructure that would allow you to shift large quantities of, of, of uh, power from mm-hmm. one area to another. You know, we had it because we have natural disasters and what have you. Um, but that's still something somewhat unique, you know, to, to large countries, industrialized countries like the United States. But the Germans were extremely vulnerable. If you knocked out two or three uh, power generation plants, They'd be, they'd be, they'd be in bad shape. And we didn't only find out after war was over, you know, we interviewed people in German industry uh, and they basically confirmed, well, that's why I got into the strategic bombing survey that was based upon these interviews uh, that as resourceful as the Germans were, uh, they could repair damage, they could shift manufacturing plants, but they needed electrical energy. And the problem with those big power plants was they had certain components that had a, a year or more lead time. Uh, oh, you know, maybe 10 months if you sped it up, but uh, they just, you just couldn't get spare parts off the shelf and put it all back together again. So that was their huge vulnerability. So to make the game work, I had to make, I make, had to make hitting that random, very random, uh, you know, the, the power grid, because it had a very low priority during the war. But anyway, these are the things games teach you, you know, you, you like I say, being able to look at a game. Uh, I guess doctors, it, it makes sense for doctors and lawyers to be, be people who read the game because they're accustomed to looking at a, you know, a patient or listening to a client and what have you, looking at a complicated situation and basically laying it out in a logical, such a logical uh, way in their heads. So they could basically follow it through, whether it be for surgery or diagnosis or or winning a a, a complicated uh, you know legal case. Um, so I mean, it was the same kind of it was the same kind of quality that was required for people to be interested in war games. In other words, there were a lot of people out there. Well, two percent of the population mm-hmm. actually that's probably fewer <laughs> than the percentage who are lawyers. You needed people who had that skill, that 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 um, perception analysis, mm-hmm. as for. Uh, as well as an interest in history. Uh, and as we later found out, as, as our gamers got married, had kids, and what have you, needed time, which you ran out of <laughs> as you got into the uh, childbirth phase. Um, so and that's probably why a lot of our, our, our most uh, uh, regular gamers were skewed young. You know, they were past puberty, but they hadn't discovered how to score with the ladies yet. Yeah. One, one, of, the, one of the things about the game testers was – the older ones we got, you know, the married guys with kids who sometimes show up with their kids, uh, because they were more mature, they were usually, not always, <laughs> um, there was more valuable interaction, I think. Yes. And also, you know, I think we need a feedback. And damn, that's a, that's a yeah. valuable resource. I wish I had kept records of the results. Oh, no, actually, we did publish the results. Well, anyway, anybody who's got those old copies of the magazines, you can flip through the outgoing mail where that's that, the editorial thing mm-hmm. and in every issue uh, where we gave the results. But we had it once, once we discovered that, uh, that, you know, disparity in playing attitudes between the very young and the, and the older gamers, uh, we had to make that an aspect of game design. So you, yeah. you're constantly getting feedback, not just from the game, which is very important. And we go into that in war game design and anything else I've written, the war games handbook. Uh, <clears throat> uh, 
that, you know, once you get a playable prototype, it may not be 100% accurate, but it is able to feed back to you. You play, oh, this isn't working. And I remember, Al, I, I, especially with Naval Matters, we were doing a lot of naval games. Well, not a lot, but more than anybody else was. And Al could, uh, he, was an, he was the naval expert. Uh, and he basically had sources or he had stuff off the top of his head. But we often have to get maps and what have you and work out what actually happened. I mean, a lot of naval actions weren't as straightforward as, you know, Savo Island um, uh, or even some of the carrier battles. There were a lot of actions which were a bit more complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what made that's what made them gaming situations. Uh, but you had, you had to work out all the details, as it were, who could actually do what. Uh, and it wasn't just a matter of looking at ships and, well, they got cruisers, we got cruisers, uh, we got pretty good crews, they got pretty good crews. That's not, as I discovered in Jutland, <laughs> you know, uh, just having the same number of ships, it all depends on the, the training and the, and the mentality, as it were. Uh, not so much of the crews. The crews can always, if you got good chief petty officers, you know, everybody will get their crews up to the same level of, of competence. But it's the the Germans had an advantage in World War One, not a major one, but it was significant uh, in the design of their ships. I don't know. If, I, I don't. I never found out exactly how they got that. I think they just listened more uh, and, and looked at it with an analytical eye more so than the the British. The British made too many assumptions. Um, but their tactical officers, and you saw this in World War Two with the submarine war. Uh, they basically stayed in the game, you know, long past, you know, when they should have gotten out. I mean, in terms of casualties, because I think in the end, the the casualty rate among submarine crews was something like 80, 90 percent. Yes. Uh, you know, there were a few survivors. Yeah, uh, recent uh, estimates now suggest, you know, the traditional date for the for the 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 the, 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 the critical moment in the, you know, the victory in the in the submarine war was is usually given as March 43. And uh, some some people studying, you know, submarine losses and crew losses and whatnot, are basically saying that uh, uh, sometime in '42 probably was the critical moment. Once once the Allies began to understand the problem, you know, that was the critical thing. Stuff coming out of the shipyards made the, di- the difference beginning in '43, but but the decisive moment was not '43 but '42 because of that. Yeah, understanding how they use the, uh, the wolf pack uh, tactic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also, the, the, the Germans, I don't, apparently they didn't do this out of suspicion of ultra, you know, our code-breaking operation, which broke a lot of their codes. The problem with the military was it wasn't just one secret code. Even if they used the same machine, like the Enigma machine, which was the basic one they used, uh, the unbreakable machine, uh, and that should teach you something about computer security. But anyway, <laughs> the um, uh, each service and and often both different groups in each service had their own code. Uh, and even if you broke the code in like the army, that that got you started with the navy, but you were still not decoding enough information. Uh, and the submarines had their own code, and the submarines also had Enigma machines. That's why it was so important. The British captured one submarine. I think we might have captured one. But the important thing was we didn't just capture the submarine. We got somebody down below to grab the Enigma machine mm-hmm. because the Navy version of the Enigma was a little different from the one used by the other services. Yeah. Uh, and We got um, the very, one of the very first commando raids, the one up there in Svalbard or wherever the heck, you know, one of those yeah. frozen islands. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that although the raid the raid had a legitimate object uh, above board, you know, destroying the fish oil production facilities and whatnot, it turned out the British had discovered that there was an Enigma machine up there, and they did grab the machine, but then they sort of left it on the shelf for a while. Yeah, yeah. They, it's funny, you know, the, it was the Poles who pioneered breaking mm. the Enigma, and in fact, when Poles who got out of Poland. And it finally over to Britain. Well, they first sent their inf- their information they were getting, so the 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 Brits knew about you know the Polish uh, code breaking activities. Uh, and, and at the same time, we were doing it to the Japanese. They weren't using Enigma, and we cracked. That was the magic you know codes mm-hmm. that, that made uh, the uh, Midway victory possible. Uh, but the uh, the the Poles got themselves an early version of the Enigma, and that got to Britain. But again, as Al pointed out. They didn't quite take it and realize how serious, how seriously valuable 
capturing Enigma machines was. But by the, I, 43, I think, was when they captured the first one in a submarine. I, again, I don't have the exact mm. date. But um, that was a gold mine because they had never seen the naval Enigma. They knew it was different, and it was much more difficult to crack. That's why one of the, as I was pointing out, one of the th- big things they discovered with the uh, – uh, the wolf pack tactics in 42, which by 41 and 42 were, were a major, you know, uh, reason why we were losing so many ships, um, was that we couldn't, uh, we couldn't, we couldn't crack that code. Uh, now we had the huff duff, the, the directional finding or what have you, uh, but the Germans were out wise to that and they basically used very few radio communications. They were very brief, uh, you know, maybe a few seconds as it were. At, at certain times, and the subs spent most of their time on the surface, so they could they could afford to be around or you know have their antenna up to catch the uh, the burst signals, as it were. Um, and but they had like a like a playbook uh, where we got certain you know uh, you know brief codes uh, that couldn't be uh, couldn't give away your location, uh, you know, with the that the huffed up thing. There were the 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 uh, what do you call it the um, uh, the few submarines that were broadcasting longer messages, mm. uh, they they basically uh, neutralized the effectiveness of that. But once we got the Enigma, Naval Enigma sorted out, uh, that's why people mentioned, you know, 43, we were starting to uh, read the, the Naval Enigma. But of course, the big thing that happened in 43 was we realized we could send out these Jeep carriers, you know, the, the small aircraft carriers that carried maybe a dozen, you know, aircraft. Uh, and, uh, that gave them air cover in the gap. There was this, this black hole as it were in the center of the North Atlantic where there was no air support. Uh, during, in the rest of the Atlantic had these B, the, you know, these, uh, these Naval maritime patrol aircraft, you, uh, many of them were just bombers, you know, converted to carry depth charges and, and more fuel and what have you, but they could only go so far. So you had this gap of, you know, I don't know thousand kilometers you know wide and that was the death zone you had to go through it it wasn't worthwhile trying to go around it because you know either way it'd take too long etc etc but once we had the jeep carriers in with the uh with the uh uh uh, with the uh large convoys the germans were screwed so uh, because these kind of radar so even at night you could spot the wolf wolf pack assembly this is a nice segue into what I want to talk about next, which is the creation of solo games or purpose-designed solitaire games. One of yours was Wolfpack, but yeah. the first one that SPI did or it was in Strategy and Tactics was Fall of Rome, which was done by John Young. Yeah. Uh, w- I mean, when did the concept of saying, hey, you know, maybe we could do solo games, uh, was that based on some of the feedback that you were getting that, you know, most players played solo when they actually had the copy of Strategy and Tactics or they bought a box version of one of the SPI games? Well, there were two reasons. One was that, that we knew a lot of people, large, I think half, you know, played solo. But a lot of them, again, we got this out of the focus groups. They did that by preference. Uh, they basically just turn the map around or get on the other side of the table. That's how people hone their chess game, as it were. Mm. Uh, but people enjoyed, unlike chess, which is kind of dry or you know, more of a, a purely you know, uh, intellectual exercise, uh, you learn more playing both sides of the, um, uh, of the game. In fact, that was the, the, that, that, and the other element for that was there were some situations where it was really a solitaire game. I mean, the other side was, was so programmed and what they could, had to do, they had, they had restrictions and what have you, uh, that the situation was best done as a solitaire game. For example, the Germans had a problem. They didn't have the kind of communications capability uh, that the, uh, the surface forces had. Uh, they were basically very, they were, they were basically submersible gunboats and <laughs> they carried torpedoes and, uh, they were slow, uh, and and stealth was their their primary defensive, you know, uh, asset. Um, so you know, when they when a wolf pack a wolf pack would basically operate almost autonomously. It would detect the presence of an approaching. They have they have scout submarines, you know, in, in off, uh, offshore, as it were, uh, there just to uh, spot a a major convoy moving out. 
the guy would uh, send out a, a brief message again using this code so the huff duff wouldn't z- you wouldn't make locate him uh, too quickly and he'd go down and, and basically evade um, but uh, at that after that it was pretty much automatic uh, available submarines would automatically form and they knew this the captains had their playbooks as it were uh, and uh, they had various ways of approach head on you know uh, flanking uh, yada yada Germans had whole you know they did a lot of research on this um, and uh, we only figured it out when we got some, one of the early operations research uh, coups was again a uh, Making operations research is what really turned submarine anti-submarine warfare into a, into a solo game, because the Germans, uh, and partially this was they were Germans, uh, very organized and what have you, uh, but they basically were trapped by their own. Well, actually, initially they were, they benefited from their own uh, not rigidness, but you know always reacting with the plan. The wolf pack formation and tactics. There's, there are very few decisions to be made, and some of them could be made with the roll of a die, so to speak. I mean, it's six of one, half dozen of the other, um, and this made you know solitaire games uh, you know possible. So we did wolf pack, which was something of a. You know, let's throw this out there and see what happens. It's very popular. I still hear from people in the anti-submarine community over the years about they got a hold of a copy of wolf pack and said, "Oh, this is great." Um, and, uh, and Al basically, you know, scraped up a lot, all the, you know, the, the, the data and there's a lot, there was a lot available eventually by that seventies. A lot of it was classified for years, um, on the tactics. Uh, and that was just an ideal game to turn into a, a solitaire. Fall of Rome was another great concept because the barbarians were basically, you know, they weren't under any joint, under unified control. They were just doing what wandering barbarian tribes did. And that was closing in on the goodies, and that was the Roman Empire. Um, and uh, and the only the only problem with that game is the, the rules got out, you know, in a terrible state. I mean that that was such a disaster that we really tightened up. I mean, Redmond was steaming. Um, he was our he was our basically, uh, you know, uh, how should I put it? Perfectionist. Uh, he he was the biggest <laughs> fanatic and 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 the and the loudest, you know, critic. If, if, if rules got out, they were, they were screwed. In fact, I got into the habit, whenever a new game came out, I would take one home and actually sit down and play a couple of turns. And I would sometimes come in the next day ready to fire somebody. Um, that's why I, one reason I took up running. I was always a little mellowed out after running five or ten miles. Um, and uh, I would say, how did this get through? You know, well, I wasn't just, you know, reaming somebody up. But I would say, you know, I uh, a lot of times it was just, you know, too many people dropped the ball along the way. And Redmond liked that. And he would he was doing the same thing, as a matter of fact. I think I might have learned it from him. But between the two of us, uh, and, and a lot of other people started doing that, people who were not involved in a particular game, they grab a copy. We'd get them, you know, a week or so before they were shipped. Uh, it was too late to change anything, although I think in a few – it might have been a rare cases we have a piece of paper slipped in at the last minute at some expense, you know, rules corrections. Um, but the, uh, the, the point was that, you know, uh, games were never finished. But it was – and that was, a, that was an adage, you know, I, I, I threw back at the developers and designers. Says, I know you could do more, but at some time, if we're going to keep this, you know, solvent, this operation, you got to have a cutoff date. Do the best you can. At least get the rules straight. Uh, all right, Redmond will take care of all the art and stuff like that, and we'll ship it. And, you know, as right there, it stands there, as the German said, you know, people will admire the fact that you got the damn thing out the door. And we were turning out, you know, better quality, larger numbers of better quality games than Avalon Hill was. You know, their their rules had some howlers. Um, but again, they didn't have a bigger staff. They had no staff at all. So it's it's admirable how much they did, you know, with so few people. But they learned from us because they couldn't do the more complicated games they did later on, you know, without, you know, uh, a staff, as it were, people who like uh, that's why when Tom Shaw came to me when he said he was going to staff up with some professionals, because up to that point, everybody was ad hoc, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what do you call that? Students, opera- playtesters on earning minimum wage, you know, for doing some game design and stuff like that. Um, 
I was familiar with Don Greenwood. He was publishing one of the scenes, but he was a very active gamer, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the, in the small print community as well. And I'd, I think he'd come down. He was up in Connecticut or somewhere up in New England. And he'd come down a couple of times, and I got to talk with him. And I said, you know, I can highly recommend, you know, Don Greenwood. He's a very knowledgeable guy, and he's probably available. And he was, and he went there. He was there for years. Um, but he was the core, as it were, um, of their uh, of their, their professional design staff. But the problem was you had to make the game as tight in terms of the rules as possible. There may still be flaws in there. There always were. Um, but people really get hacked off if they can't understand the rules or, you know, they, they basically do and they don't make any sense. Uh, a lot of the testing, a lot of the, the, uh, the testing of the rules themselves had to do with uh, – what doesn't make sense? What is vague? You know, what, what is, you know, uh, you know, difficult to interpret. That's one reason Redmond came up with the case system. Uh, you could add as many cases as you needed to basically clarify. There were exceptions and what have you. You had to keep that to a minimum. I was, the, I was always a fanatic about having, you know, concise rules as possible. You don't need all this extra stuff. I got outvoted. I mean, there was these monster games. But even the monster games, they were physically large, but the rules didn't have to be so goddamn large. Uh, but some games, it, it were very complicated processes you had to go through. And this, this basically, in the glory days of the late 70s, there was enough people out there to buy these more expensive, more complex games. Um but long term, you know, it was a bad bet because, again, you were you were selling to a lot of people who had less time. And uh, that's why we had the game systems. Uh, we develop a game system like I, the game, I, the system I developed, I guess it was for uh, France 1940. It was in the magazine that we used for over four or five uh, Eastern well, World War Two operational level, you know, division level games uh, situations. And it worked very well. Uh, the quad games we all based upon, you know, the same basic system. Uh, and that worked, God, we, a couple dozen games out of that. And the players appreciated that because I said they, if they were experienced gamer, they could basically sit down and learn a game, you know, in 15 minutes. Just look at, you know, we purposely put in, you know, the exceptions and what have you. Uh, and bingo, they were off to, off to the races. Um, and, and that's where computers hurt us because mm-hmm. computers had the, you know, you just switch it on and what have you. And, of course, the, the, the poor, the early computer game designers uh, thought that they, 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 could, they could have their online rules and whatnot. And I pointed out to some of them early on. Well, I realized it early on. You had to make the games intuitive. People did not want to read instructions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dan Dan's no in the software business. He, he's familiar with that. <laughs> Yeah, and we had that infamous sign on the uh, on the wall posted on every playtest room, room, RTF, RTFR. And if people ask what that stood for, read the fucking rules. Um, and, and that was especially important in playtest games because we would get – we had a computerized um, – uh, what do you call it? A, a typesetting system early on before we got uh, personal computers in 77, 78. A year or so earlier, we had the computerized, uh, which is basically an early model PC that did typesetting. But it could also churn out a, uh, you know, an early copy. You could basically type in the rules early on, and you could easily make, you know, a, a, a changes. But you could literally print out one copy and then Xerox it and pass it on. And the gamers were impressed with that, you know, would have copyright, you know, SBI, that, uh, developmental, you know, for development of use, whatever, uh, whatever mumbo jumbo, you know, was a turn on in those days. Um, but, you know, they appreciated that. And it drove home the fact that, you know, unless you or, you know, you later wanted to get a game that you didn't get involved playtesting, that wasn't, that wasn't combed thoroughly enough to get out all the, uh, you know, the obvious flaws that, you know, everybody was going to suffer. Uh, the other thing people, again, the, the advantage that manual games still have is that you can easily change the rules, which is how a lot of game players became game designers. Um, and this was early on, even before SBI got started, or at the same time, there were Avalon Hill gamers who were basically changing the rules of Avalon Hill games to, you know, do different stuff with them. Right. And uh, then there were the, yeah, and then they had their fanzines where they would publish those rules. and Right. Well, right. even even you guys at the very earliest did some publishing where there is the uh, Blitzkrieg system that oh, you did. Oh, the Blitzkrieg module system. Right. 
Yeah, that was 1970 or 71. Yeah. Right. That was a, that was a direct you know, uh, homage to that. You know, we were taking a, a game that was out there, you know, uh, Blitzkrieg, which was a, which was a basically an anonymous game. There was no no history in it, uh, but we expanded that and we invented it in another game. Uh, and Avalon Hill didn't come after us, you know. Uh, we tried to avoid any obvious, you know, uh, infringement, as it were. You you couldn't you couldn't tr- you couldn't patent a game. You could only basically uh, trademark uh, not trademark but copyright printed material. You know, visual or written them on have you, but that gave other companies, publishers, a lot of leeway, and we accepted that early on, and we—that's why we published a lot of it. You know, and we mentioned not going mail. I said, yeah, you know, you know, I, I said, you know, it's not plagiarizing. Use the French word homage. Uh, it's more dignified, and in, in many ways, <laughs> right. it's, 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 it's so. Bad. There was a there was a computer company uh, later on. I think their name was SSI. That, yes, yes. That, they homage us to death. <laughs> right. Yeah. Richard Berg, uh, I had a conversation with him about how they they uh, looked at your maps and they copied them so precisely that uh, even the you guys would put puns on the map. Right, so things that didn't right. really exist, but. And they yeah, they had copied even those. Yeah, and that's when you can nail them with a uh, you know with a with a copyright violation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, publishers often do that, especially in expensive technical books. They'll put in not so obvious flaws uh, uh, that are unique, you know, to that particular book. Things you wouldn't actually catch, and if somebody else uh, you know plagiarized it, you, you could point out to that. Salting that so about salting the man. Yes, we did yeah. that. Uh, remember, we did that in um, uh, Pacific War Encyclopedia. Oh, right, the Skull Island. Yes, yeah. <laughs> nobody, no, literally nobody has ever commented about that. Yeah, uh, that, Al, Al, uh, Dan, I want to say something that Al, that is not, that is not totally accurate because oh, that's okay. the most unique rule in that Pacific War game. You would lose. No, 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 the encyclopedia. Oh, oh, I, the book. I yeah, you, the books we the did. Book, the book. Uh, I thought you were talking about the Skull Island rule. That was. Oh, no. right. Yeah. In one of the games, we had the Skull yeah. Island rule where basically, you know, the bad things happened if you landed on the island. Yeah. You know where I got that from? That actually is from a, a real incident. Uh, they had the uh, one of the naval battles was the uh, Santa Cruz, I believe it was. And it was over who was going to get possession of Santa Cruz Island. And when they finally get, went on to the island, they didn't find King Kong. Or, or, oh, or yeah. dinosaurs, they found a, a variant of malaria that was more fatal than any doctors had ever encountered. And they said it's not worth it to, to station any personnel. The the natives are fairly, you know, uh, resistant to it, but that's that was developed over, over hundreds of generations, for God's sake. Uh, and so we basically backed off. And of course, the Japanese, you know, well, they were out of the game as far as grabbing that island anyway but if they'd gone in there they would have died like flies as it was in guadalcanal where you had your you know your 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 standard grade you know uh uh south pacific you know malaria um uh that's where we basically you know uh not taking your quinine pills which was the you know the the uh, the thing that we did would uh, either resist malaria or at least uh mitigate the uh the symptoms uh it was a court martial offense and officers and NCOs were instructed to go around it personally because the stuff tasted like hell. Uh, but, you know, a lot of guys saw somebody who didn't and got malaria and they said, I think I'll take my pills on a regular basis. But you, when you get a strain of the stuff that's fatal like that, you know, the, the pills are enough and enough. But in Guadalcanal, the Japanese didn't have the medical support that we had. And they, they found out, or I discovered this in, 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 in studying that, uh, that situation, that their battalions would waste away in a couple of months. I mean, literally, everybody would be, you know, out of, incapable of, of, of doing anything because of the, uh, everybody had this, uh, uh, you know, uh, one case of one uh, attack of uh, malaria after another. The American battalions, again, were, they, everybody was under strict orders. It was much slower. I mean, it was still there. People would still, you know, be carried off. Uh, well, initially, um, General, uh, uh, when the medical officers told General Van de Grief, you know, we got to go out and kill these mosquitoes, he, he made some rude remark about how I'm, you know, we're supposed to be killing chaps, not killing mosquitoes. But when the first cases of malaria began to happen, he quickly fell into line. Yeah. 
And and somebody, maybe somebody mentioned to him the Japanese aren't killing mosquitoes, so the mosquitoes are our allies. (laughs) So use them. It's like the Roman auxiliaries. uh, One of the things I'd like to wrap up with is talking a little bit about how SPI impacted things from the standpoint of, well, the future of of wargaming as far as designers and like that goes. And then some of the other unique uh, personalities that were there. Uh, I'll just rattle off the ones that I know on the design side that have continued to impact industry. Uh, We'll put up the, the two that are probably the most well-known, which are Mark Herman Mm -hmm. who came in and was a play tester and then became a clerk and then became a, uh, a developer and then a designer for you guys. Uh, you had Richard Berg, right? Mm-hmm. And he was there early on. Uh, not early on, but uh, in came in on in the mid-70s or so, right? Yeah. You had uh, John Prados, I think is yeah. how you say his he, name. He still design. Yeah, it's, it's he, design, he doesn't design so much now as he writes. He's a, a fairly yeah. prolific well, writer. But he, but he still gets involved in designing a few. I was going right. to a list of you know recent gaming publications, and I recognized a few couple of names. Of guys who like Mark and uh, Richard, who passed away a couple of years ago, right? Uh, kept turning them out. Mm. Yeah, you know, and then you had uh, Joe uh, Balkowski. Is that how you say Balkowski. his name? Balkowski. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, he got more into books than games, uh, but he was an ace at both. Right. He uh, he did a series for Avalon Hill that it has continued to be republished and it's actually been designed uh other designers have gotten in with it and like that but his base rule set is the same yeah. there's one where they took a system and avalon hill you know basically continued to publish other versions of it uh you have um oh uh, eric lee smith mm-hmm. uh who uh, went on to, well, you had a, a bunch of guys that went on to go and develop that division of Avon Hill, uh, Victory Games. Victory Games, yeah, that lasted for seven or eight years. Right, and mm-hmm. they're the actual, actual ones that uh, did some of the real pioneering work in in solo games and yeah. have solo games that are still much coveted. Some of them, uh, now did John Souther, Sutherland, did he do anything for you guys at S and T? Cause he's, uh, he's, he's one of the guys at victory games that did, uh, some, uh, games that go for hundreds of dollars now on, on the, uh, internet. He might've, he might've been involved because basically Mark picked up, uh, when that, when when SPI went out of you know existence, I think was it eighty three or something like that. Uh, uh, that's when he Mark started Victory Games, and he basically took cherry picked as it were. Uh, that's why Victory Games did so well until Mark got a job he you know often couldn't refuse from the uh, Pentagon, you know the, the mm. uh, contractors, um, and. Um, uh, and a lot of these people, because there were so many small game companies coming out, you know, there was there was a time when the early desktop publishing came around, and again the system, and the and later on the internet. But basically, uh, the knowledge, as it were, like London cab drivers, uh, was pretty widespread. Uh, and these and there were there were guys who basically, if you were willing to give them, you know, a thousand bucks or whatever. They would design a game for you, you know, advance on royalties and what have you. Uh, and they found a way to sell, to make profitable games that would sell only a few thousand copies. Uh, these, were, these were companies that were basically, you know, one or two people. Maybe they had an office or maybe just a garage, you know, one of them. Um, and some of them are still in business. Uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's if, you're into, if you're into creating the games... I mean, that's an ideal situation. You might have a lot of them have good jobs, you know, day jobs, as it were. Uh, but this is their hobby. Uh, and early on, I scheduled Schedule C. Uh, and so those I didn't know about, it, I said, look, you got look when you do your taxes, look at Schedule C. That's for a, you know, a a a a, a, a business activity, you know, not very mm-hmm. secondary one. Um, and I says you could basically expense a lot of what you spend on, on designing and, and publishing games and all the books you buy and what have you. It, it's in effect, you're getting all that stuff for, you know, 30, 40, whatever your tax bracket mm-hmm. is, you know, off. Uh, and to this day, I use that, although I don't buy any books anymore. Right. I, uh, I use that today. I, I've used that uh, probably ever since I've known you. 
Yeah. So, um, one of the things too is there were some other people that rolled out. They may have been designers or they were play testers that moved up in the U.S. government and and in the corporate world. You mentioned Mark ended up at Booz Allen, who yeah. you know he he was he was over like their uh, yes, several group times. that did stuff for the government as as yeah. far as simulations and like that, but. Uh, I want to mention one that has a special place in my heart because I met him and got to spend some time at an Origins. He's passed away. He designed Armada for you, uh, but oh, Sterling yeah. Hart. Yes. Oh yes. Oh, yes. Sterling was one of our. He was one of the guys who. Uh, he was a. Yeah, he was a. He was a, what, a Harvard graduate. He went to Harvard Business School. He was a very well educated guy. He, his wife was a professional software developer. Julie, uh, stayed in touch with her for years after he passed away in the nineties. Um, but anyway, he. I'll never forget the day these guys in suits coming to the plate testing, uh, or just coming to visit to see if this place actually existed. And we had these wooden planks out in the uh, in, in with the underground layer, you know, on on Twelfth Street, um, our first office, as it were. And we basically go talking about Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> we were at the end of the hall, and you basically went, they had these these wooden you know planks, as it were. This that were, but sometimes when it, when it rained heavily, you'd, there'd be a little water down there on the floor. Uh, so he was coming down there, and he said, "This is this is SPI." And I says, "Yeah," and I, and we introduced ourselves, you know, and we were famous friends, you know, right up until he passed away. Uh, in fact, when they were, uh, you know, after I left SPI, I kept getting offers to get back in, which I always turned down, especially in Washington. But at one point, uh, they asked me if I'd uh, uh, basically put together the first uh, wargaming center for the National Defense University down in DC. And I said, "Look, guys, I got my hands full up here in New York, but I can recommend." And I reckon back against Sterling Hart uh, and uh, and what's his name, um, our our retired general. God, the name escapes me. Anyway, uh, and um, uh, Sterling was then working for an advertising agency down in the D.C. area. I think it was uh, what he called it, one of the big uh, auto insurance uh, companies, and uh, he was pretty high up in the hierarchy. But he always wanted to work for you know war gaming. And the government, and eventually he ended up with the CIA. That's where he was working when he died. And um, and I said, well, what about Sterling Hart and God, Bill? I forget his name, but anyway, uh, they they interviewed him both and they hired him both. Uh, Sterling was the guy in charge; he had more experience. And the other guy, God, he was a general in military police. I says was the only police general in one of the, in the American Army. But anyway, uh, he. Uh, uh, I, he, I met him. He was a, he was an instructor up at West Point. He come down to the playtesting sessions a couple of times. Uh, that's why I met. He was an enthusiastic gamer, uh, and that that did very well. In fact, uh, he Sterling ran that for several years uh, until the CIA offered him a job, uh, and that's where he was when he passed away. Right. Uh, so and, uh, he was happy as a you know pig and shit as it were. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. yes, and that's guys. what I met him was he was in the CIA and he bought he brought a a fellow spook with him that was also uh, right, right, right. That right. Uh, we had a, a Utah Mormon connection. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You guys gave the secret handshake or whatever. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the the a lot of Mormons get into the foreign service because they learn languages because of their missionary duty early on. Uh, and they're more, they tend to be more trust, trustworthy than your average Gentile. But anyway, um, the, uh, and we didn't smoke, a, we, a lot of us didn't smoke a lot of pot. So that, that helped out. Well, we kept that. That's true because you couldn't drink caffeine or, or alcohol. But anyway, the, um, uh, there's, there's actually there's still reserve intelligence units out there in Utah. Yep. Because there are so many intelligence specialists or people who uh, speak foreign languages. Yeah. They, um, uh, uh, we had, as Al has found out, because a lot of them, uh, when I, when these guys discover me, once email became a big thing in, in about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and everybody, I've been using it. I was online since 79, um, on CompuServe, I think it was, but anyway. Yeah. But then you were on, uh, you were on the genie system and AOL early on. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, um, uh, these systems uh, were basically very small 
in terms of you know the number of people they had. But as but since our war gamers, I, we called it or Howie Bresh, I think, coined this term, the hobby for the overeducated. Uh, <laughs> And they were basically, you know, the early adopters of computers, you name it, any new tech or new tech or tech idea. Uh, and these guys, they would start looking around. I mean, my email address was in my books. That's that's where I put it. That's why I maintained. I still have the AOL account. I check once a month or something like that, because that's sitting in a lot of my early editions of a lot of my books. And I said, hey, you know, don't write email because uh, it's easier to deal with. Um and uh, uh, I started having a lot of these. And, and I always, when I'd reply, I'd CC Al. And Al would often remember them better than I would because Al would basically be sitting down with a lot of these playtesters and, and talking shop. I'd be flitting around, you know, dealing with business matters and, you know, uh, just checking a, whole, a long list of games. for that. Fridays is when I did my performance analysis and what have you. Uh, and one of the things we got every week was this big printout. It was, you know, bound in a, in a folder. Uh, of the uh, we had time we had we had time cards but they were very simple you simply filled in the percentage of your time you spent on each project and there was no miscellaneous <laughs> so you had to basically bill uh, this for the game development part timer and full timer you had to bill all your your time to some project and every week I they knew Jim would look at this damn stuff and occasionally I'd find hmm what's going on here and they stop doing whatever they were doing, which they weren't supposed to be doing. Uh, but anyway, I, I basically, I, I could often spot problems or simply areas there were, they were getting more billables than they probably, sh- I thought they should have. And many, most cases it was for a good reason. There were some problems with the design, et cetera. Or maybe there were personnel problems. And so I'd be running around Friday night taking care of that. But Al wasn't burdened with those, those, you know, uh, bad cop, you know, duties, um, and he got to talk more with the uh, with the kids. I was also I was also keeping the uh, the dossiers. Remember, <laughs> remember right. we had the little right, right. you know, because after the play after every play test, we'd ask the designer or the developer, "How did these testers go?" And so we could rate them. Yeah, uh, um, because I can always remember the remember the dribbler. You know, there was a category called the dribbler. Yeah. And we don't <laughs> want these guys. And, Probably the category I would have been in. <laughs> well, well, the thing was that there were some guys who were pains in the butt, but and not very helpful during the the design of the game. But when we were getting towards the end of you know you know going to pr- get get ready to go to press, several of the design the developers would say, "Yeah, give me so and so because he's he's such a nitpicker. We'll really find yeah. the bloopers, you know." Yeah. Right, so uh, and also Al had the he had the, he had to collect that information to decide who qualified to go in the credits because your big yeah. thing was in the game credits, designer, developers, playtesters, uh, and and after a while people learned that that was a big deal, not just anybody who sat down and spent a couple hours playing it, but only those people who stuck with it and made a valuable contribution. Yeah, uh, and yeah. there you find a lot of future you know people who were designers later on. Right now, through, got those games. Now, one of the things that was different about uh, SPI and strategy and tactics was you would give credit to the designer, you give tr- credit to the developer, and you would give credit to the play testers, which wasn't something Avalon Hill did. Well, no, Avalon Hill followed the game uh, methodologies, and one of the things I, I did when when they asked me to do uh, well to sell no wait the first two games I did I had no leverage. You know, Jutland in 1914. But when they asked for Panzer Blitz, which was one of their all-time bestsellers, uh, right up there with Squad Leader, uh, I said, uh, one of the stipulations is you will put on the box designed by James F. Dunnigan, graphic design by Redmond Simons. Mm-hmm. And you will put that in the rules. Uh, and once that happened, you know, there was no going back. The horse was out of the barn and he, weren't mm-hmm. go- he wasn't going back. Uh, and they basically were forced to do that. Now, we already did that, you know, with SBI games. That's where it came from. Uh, but that, that, that with, once Avalon Hill, you know, bent over, as it were, uh, it became standard. Uh, throughout the yeah. uh, and, throughout the industry, right, and it's still a big deal for those playtesters the that really put their effort into playtesting the game to get the credit for it, even though they don't get paid for it. They want that credit. Well, they get a free game and right. what have. And a lot of them, they, that if they were good playtesters, they we had part timers 
who would put in 10, 20 hours a, a week, you know, on after school and on. For example, we didn't have any full-time receptionists. Uh, right. We'd have to- I think that's what Mark Herman did for a while, right? Right. No, I, I had to fill in a couple of times when there was nobody, mm-hmm. you know, everybody was busy. And I said, well, look, I, what I'm doing, I can just sit there and answer the phone and, and keep on doing what I'm doing. And a few people wandering who, who knew me and said, what are you doing? I said, well, we're running man short on staff. Uh, and that in the 70s, that was a big that was a that was the way things went, as it were. But we had no secretaries either. So a lot of the part timers, one of the qualifications was, can you type? Yeah, everybody, everybody had to be able to type. Mm-hmm. Uh, so any correspondence or anything like that, uh, you know, entering data. Um, I mean, we had we had full time people doing the order, order processing when involved, you know, typing stuff into a computer. But uh, for, you know, uh, miscellaneous letters and correspondence and whatever, uh, anybody who could type, you know, got a, uh, an, an advantage in getting a, a part time job. So, yeah, they had these part time jobs, which in several cases turned into full time jobs, you yeah. know, for a year or so. Anyway, so we've we've run out of time uh, next time. What I'm hoping we can talk about is one we we touched on it a little bit today, but the monster game I'd like to know uh, more, more about the whole process and what was involved there. The other thing that I want to talk about is your political games uh, that you did, and some that you you yourself don't list as a political game, but I I want to uh, throw into that category. One of the games I want to talk about next time is Chicago, Chicago. Okay, and, uh, and up so against the, the wall too, maybe right, and up against the wall. So uh, we'll be uh, talking about those next time. Okay, okay. bye. All right. Bye.